Well, if you will turn with me to Psalm 13. Psalm 13 is where we are this morning uh, as we continue our summer series in the Psalms. It's a short one, uh, but it is packed. And uh, so turn your attention to the reading of God's Word. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would be at work in our hearts and minds today. Father, we need you and we need your spirit uh, to illuminate us. I pray that your spirit would fill and strengthen me. Lord, as we read about difficult situations and um, life in a broken and sinful world, Lord, give us insight, give us understanding by your word, knowing that the unfolding of your word gives light. So may it be unfolded clearly this morning. Lord, work in us for your glory and for our good and joy. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, there's a condition in psychology called cognitive dissonance, and it's, it's the tension that, that we experience uh, as we try and figure out how to reconcile two or more pieces of information that are in opposition to one another. And, and what we typically do in, in those situations when we experience that is we try to rid ourselves of that dissonance by either looking um, for a new way of thinking or simply by dismissing what doesn't fit with our uh, preconceived or deeply rooted ideas. To be honest, I think we see this in Scripture. Maybe it's not technically cognitive dissonance. I'm not a psychologist, so I don't know all the ins and outs, but it seems to be pretty close to me. Because throughout the Scriptures, you you will come across this basic question, how long? How long? How how long will it be this way? How long will it be that the wicked prosper? How can it be that the righteous are oppressed? How can it be that the church does not live up to its calling? How can the world be like this when God is all-powerful and just and good and righteous? You know, though, as much as I think cognitive dissonance is helpful... There's, there's another way where I don't think this is dissonance at all. It's simply the way a world full of sinners and broken people operates. It's the reality of a broken and fallen world. We do not live in paradise. This is not Eden. And learning to live well in this world requires recognizing that, yes, this is not the way it's supposed to be or that it will be. But yet, in the midst of this turmoil, in the midst of this way it's not supposed to be, we can still trust in the Lord. He's still our refuge. 
And knowing that, and, and knowing and, and understanding the way the world works will not only help now, but hopefully will engender in us a, uh, a longing, uh, even a greater longing for the consummation of all things, the time when everything sad will come untrue. See, David knew brokenness. He knew it. He knew his own brokenness and his own sin, as well as that of the world around him. And that brokenness often brought him to the depths of despair. In the psalm before us, he's um, facing some type of massive difficulty. He's experiencing immense pain and he laments. David is, he's disoriented. He's disoriented by what's going on. So he, what's he do with that? He takes that pain to the Lord. And there is so much for us to learn from the laments. As I mentioned a few weeks ago with Psalm 5, the church has sadly lost the art of lament, and it would be really helpful for her if we recovered it, if we learned how to lament, if we would learn how to wrestle with God as we live in this world. We need to learn, as Paul did, as well as David, to be sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians to be sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, to hold those two things in tension. Now, in this psalm, you can see there's three sections. There's three strophes, and they each move the passage along. In the first two verses, David expresses his distress. His distress, what's going on? And in the next two, he expresses his desire, and in the final two, he expresses his determination. So, let us this morning learn from David as he took his pain to the Lord and in the midst of it trusted and rejoiced in Yahweh. So the first two verses give us the cry, the complaint. Again, let's read them again. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Now, what sticks out immediately is the fourfold repetition, isn't it? This fourfold repetition of how long? How long will it be? At, at what point will this end? Now, this is not the psalmist asking for information. He's not asking for a specific date and time, but it's, it's a way of him expressing the, the immensity of his distress. Now, he longs for it to end, but more so he is expressing that distress. And these four cries as well, he really covers the range of human emotional involvement. How long, uh, oh Lord, right, the, the vertical, you know, take counsel within myself inwardly, and then how long shall my enemy be exalted, the, the, the horizontal relationship with others. He's, he's dealing with the, the emotional gamut. And the first of these two how longs deal with God. How long will you... Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? Those are strong words. David feels forgotten and abandoned and even to an extent forsaken. And when you are forgotten, you're, you're not receiving that help or the comfort. It's, it's devastating to feel forgotten or left behind. 
And to David, God has hidden his face, which is uh, a Hebrew way of saying that he feels rejected and disdained by the Lord. It's like there's a brick wall between him and God. To have the face of God, that presence of God for blessing turned away from you is painful. It's difficult. It's hard to reconcile. Now, this is the heart of David's pain, the heart of his distress. It's, it's how he perceives God to be disposed and acting towards him. In many ways, it's the silence of God. For David, the hardest aspect of his situation is this. In his experience, God has forgotten him and maybe has even turned the other way while David has suffered. Yet I want you to consider this. He still prayed. A lament is still a prayer. Calvin, who's wonderful on this psalm, he wrote, The eyes of his mind, guided by the light of faith, penetrated even to the grace of God, although it was hidden in darkness. When he saw not a single ray of good hope to whatever quarter he turned, so far as human reason could judge, Constrained by grief, he cries out that God did not regard him. And yet, by this very complaint, he gives evidence that faith enabled him to rise higher and to conclude, contrary to the judgment of the flesh, that his welfare was secure in the hand of God. So everything in this circumstances says, I'm not secure, but faith went through darkness and said, I am secure in the hand of God. beautiful truth. And we have to see this aspect of the lament that really whenever we suffer, we pray. We pray. We take it to the Lord. We can still in faith reach out for comfort from the one who maybe we aren't feeling that comfort at the moment. But yet we can believe and know that He cares for us and He's good and He's wise. So in the midst of suffering and pain, let's, let's direct our hearts and our actions and our minds towards faith. We cannot ever let the, the, the truth of God's promises to His children be extinguished in our hearts because of circumstances. Yet when we're under the weight of difficulty and pain, and when we don't see any visible evidence of God working for us, and I know this, the reality is faith is not easy. It's not easy in the midst of massive difficulty and pain. Again, from Calvin, he says, to acknowledge in the midst of our afflictions that God has really a care about us is not the usual way with men or what the feelings of nature would prompt, but by faith we apprehend His invisible providence. It's not the usual way to when we are suffering to then turn in faith to the Lord. But by faith, we we grasp, we take hold of His invisible providence because we trust He's still good. We trust He's sovereign. And you know what else happens sometimes is often when you've gone for a time without the sense of God's presence with you, we have a tendency to turn elsewhere. How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? 
We resort to, to looking for remedies wherever they may be found. It may be another person or group. It could be politics or relationships to substances, to food. It could be to a lot of things. But yet then we're not always with people either. Sometimes we isolate ourselves and we can feel so very alone. And what it boils down to is you and your dangerously wandering thoughts. You experience turmoil of thought. Your constant thinking is just tumultuous. You're turning over and over in your mind different proposals to try and deal with this protracted anxiety that's going on in your life. And when you turn inward over and over again, it does not produce the gladdening of heart that you're actually longing for. Psalm 86.4, the psalmist prays, gladden the soul of your servant for to you, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. It's only the Lord that will bring the gladdening of the heart, not as we turn inward and navel gaze and everything else and and experience that turmoil. We want God to gladden our hearts, but we aren't. And so in desperation, we look elsewhere for that hope. But then the last, how long? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? To see those who are unrighteous exalted and, and even more so over you to where you didn't get it, that, but they did, they, they received that, can be a mightily depressing situation. And in particular, if you look back at Psalm 12, it's another lament in, in, in many ways, and there's hope expressed in verse 5 that the Lord is going to rise, arise, be exalted in many ways, and save His godly ones. Verse 5, because the poor are plundered, because the needy groan, I will now arise, says the Lord. I will place Him in the safety for which He longs. So the the Lord would, would arise and exalt Himself, but yet here in Psalm 13, David is saying that the enemy in many ways is arising. The enemy is being exalted. The enemy has displaced God of His rightful place. And that's dreadful news. But you know what? There's genius to this prayer. Because David appeals to the honor and the glory of God. It's a prayer for God to take his rightful place. For God to keep holy and pure his own name, to honor his own glory. The enemy is not to be exalted over God's anointed one. God is the one who is to be exalted. God is the place to where you would look for safety, not the enemy, the one who's exalted. You want to look to God as the exalted one. So, folks, in these first few verses, David expresses his distress. And what I, what I want to make sure that we grasp here is that he prayed. He prayed. He took his distress to the Lord. Through the fog of pain, he sought the light of life, and he turned in faith, weak and feeble as it may have been. And sometimes you might feel that very much yourself. It's just too weak, too feeble. My encouragement is is turn. Let's pray, help my unbelief. Turn to the great object of your faith. Because listen, 
we are feeling things in this life. Okay? We are feeling them. We're feeling pain and hurt. We're feeling joy and sorrow. We're feeling all those things. Express it to the Lord. It does us no good to stuff, to hide the pain of those feelings. Express it to the Lord. I've encouraged many people, and I've done it myself, even just write out your own psalm of lament. Express those feelings. Go to the Lord in honesty. He knows what's going on anyways. It's an expression of faith. And so let us learn from the Psalms. Calvin beautifully wrote that the Psalms are an anatomy of all the parts of the soul. For there is not an emotion of which anyone can be conscious that is not here represented as in a mirror. And so what he's saying is that if you read through the 150 Psalms, you will not miss a single emotion that you've ever had or that any human being has ever had. And so it follows that the more we acquaint ourselves with this book, the more we know the Psalms, the better off we will be in various situations. The more equipped, the more free to express to our God how we are and what we desire. And that's what David turns to next, is expressing his desire. Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him, lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. These petitions seek revival of life. That's what David longs for. I was reading this morning, part of my reading was Psalm 119 and verse 149. It says this, Hear my voice according to your steadfast love, O Lord, according to your justice, give me life. That almost feels like a summary of Psalm 13 in many ways, because what he is doing in, in this expression of his desire is, is saying, I, I, I need this. I, I need God to work salvation, because if he doesn't, it's doom. It's, it's death. He's asking for God to look upon him. He prays, consider and answer me. And he's saying, Lord, behold me. Would you, would, you, would you look at me? Would you take thought of me? Would you consider me? It's very similar to what we looked at in Psalm 5, verse 1. Consider my groaning. Folks, you know this, but sometimes a look can do so much. A look of approval can just utterly bolster the spirit. Buoy the soul. A look of disapproval can somewhat do the opposite. But just turning in that look of favor can do so much. And David longs to know tangibly that God looks upon him. We need those tangible things. It's, it's the means of grace for us. Like, I'll mention it, you know, when we... Partake of the Lord's Supper. It's a visible, tangible representation that God has looked upon His children. Because we're weak and feeble and we need that. David is saying, I, I need to know that you are looking. He's saying, God, would you please respond to me? Show me. And this is, this is extremely personal to him. 
He prays, O Lord, my God. He's praying to the covenant God, to, to Yahweh, but Yahweh is his God. He knows that. He's not appealing to some detached God that he knows nothing of, but he's praying to the personal God who has made covenant with him, an everlasting, sure covenant, steadfast. So David prays that his eyes would be enlightened because without that he will sleep the sleep of death. Now, whether he was extremely ill or just under immense pressure or being chased, we, we don't know. That's one of the beauties of this is we can put ourselves in these situations because they're not so specific. But it was dire and he needed revival. There's a story in, in 1 Samuel 14 where King Saul, they're fighting the enemies, and he makes this idiotic vow that none of his people can touch any food until the sun goes down and Saul is avenged on his enemies. Just utterly dumb. And then we read in verse 27 of 1 Samuel 14, but Jonathan, so Jonathan his son, had not heard his father charge the people with the oath, so he put out the tip of his staff that was in his hand and dipped it in the honeycomb and put his hand to his mouth and his eyes became bright. He was worn down. He was exhausted. That, that picture of enlightening the eyes is, is to, to take sustenance, to, to be sustained, to be encouraged, to be revived. He was revived by taking that. That is what David longs for, that his eyes would be brightened, that he would be revived. He wants the favor of the Lord so that, that, that God would brighten his eyes and give him relief. And he says that, lest my enemy say I have prevailed over him, lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. Listen here to, to what David doesn't ask for, okay? He doesn't ask for the destruction of this enemy. He asks, in essence, that their, that their plans, that their schemes would be thwarted, that they would not be able to rejoice, that they would not be able to say this. And this could be a clue for us as to who the enemy was. Perhaps it was family. Perhaps it was King Saul. I think it actually fits with King Saul at this point. Because if you remember David's attitude towards him in 1 Samuel 26, 11, David stated, the Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. But take now the spear that is at his head and the jar of water and let us go. He had opportunity to kill Saul and to rid him of that, that, that trouble but he, he didn't. He didn't raise a hand, and, and, and maybe that's a clue to this, but the reality is, is whoever the enemy is, David's prayer is that they would not be able to boast. They would not be able to boast at, at his demise that their plans would be stopped, that God would remove that opportunity of them to, to, to be exalted in that manner. And again, he implicitly imp uh, appeals to the honor of God. He wants God to, to make good on his promises and God to, to honor his own name. So that's the plea. It's a desire for revival, for the plans of the enemies to be stopped. And then comes what is, in, in so many ways, it, it, it almost certainly is the climax of this text. 
And that's David's determination in the midst of this pain and difficulty. It's a determination to not only take refuge in, but also to delight in the Lord. He's not only taking refuge and trusting, but he is seeking to delight. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. You see that word, but. In spite of the circumstances or even because they're there, because of them, you could say and just as easily, and either way it would work, but, but this whole idea of in spite of the circumstances, he will do this. He will do what he's stating. He will now and will continue to, to trust, to rejoice, and to sing. There's belief that though, though the darkness may be long, though the night seems longer than any night you've experienced, the reality is joy comes with the morning. And the morning will come. Light will shine forth. And so David turns his attention most pointedly to the object of his faith. He doesn't exactly know what will be the result of his prayer, but he prays, and he trusts. He trusts the faithful promises of God. He trusts the character of God. And this trust, this hope served, as one wrote, as a shield to repel those temptations with the terror of which he might be greatly distressed. That trust served as a shield as, as the flaming missiles of the evil one were, were, were thrown at him. That shield of trust and faith repelled those arrows that would have greatly distressed him. David is resolved and determined to delight and rejoice in the Lord. What he says is he says, I, I trust in the steadfast love. So I've been reading through the Psalms consistently. One of the things that comes out so often is that phrase right there, steadfast love. It's all over the place. Think about it, steadfast. Ask my family, I'm like, give me some synonyms for steadfast. Never changes. It's unwavering. It's everlasting. Never ending. It's thoroughly, 100% reliable. And what is it that's steadfast? Is love his loving kindness, his mercy. David's trusting in the character of God. He's believing him, resting in him. That's what trust is. Trust is a conscious act of not turning elsewhere for a solution or for refuge. It's believing and seeking to live in light of the theme of this book that is blessed are all who take refuge or trust in the king who reigns. Even even when we have a difficult time recognizing the reality of that rain in our lives. So then David comes, more of his resolve, he states it, he says, my heart shall rejoice in your salvation. No matter the affliction, he will continue to have the joy of faith 
His heart, that, 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 that which we, we know we have to keep with all vigilance because from it flow the springs of life, that, that, um, that, that, that part of us that is so easily injured and broken. He says that heart will rejoice. It's going to rejoice in God's salvation, in that which is irrevocable in His children that which is so precious. God saves His children. No one can snatch them from the palm of His hand. So He'll rejoice. And He says that He will sing to the Lord. He's committed to praise, to express the the, the, the depths of enjoyment that he has that, that might not be wanting to come out much, but he's saying, I'm going to express that. I'm going to express that I do delight in my God. It's not always easy. Really, it's probably very rarely easy to sing when things are not going well. You could ask my wife, I have a playlist of songs when it's kind of feeling a little depressed that just help because of, of what they say, it, it, is, it, it may be hard, but it is nonetheless good. And folks, it's healing to sing. Because singing refocuses us off of ourselves. And it, it, it directs our, our hearts and our minds to the object of our faith. It guides, it reminds the heart of what is true. Singing expresses that there is still something to delight in. The Lord Himself, the Creator of all things, He is worth delighting in merely in and of Himself. When I look up into the heavens and I see the work of your hands, what is man that you are mindful of Him and the Son of Man that you care for Him? And that God is worth delighting in, that God is worth praising, that God is worth our voice in song. Because too often when things don't go well, we just mope around and we isolate ourselves. We even isolate ourselves from Christian community. And that's the wrong thing to do. That is not going to help. It may be hard at times and there may be a time when it's just like, it's just too much and I get that. But don't stay away long, please. It's at those times that we need to sing and need to hear our brothers and sisters in Christ sing and and, and lift us up together as we sing to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. I still vividly and will probably always vividly remember June 21st, 2020. It was the first Sunday we were in this building after the pandemic. Well, not after, it's still in the midst of it, I guess. Preached on Psalm 122, let us, let us go to the house of the Lord. But what I remember more than anything else is actually hearing people sing. Even muffled through masks, it was beautiful. I'm not sure I could have made that day without the singing. Without having that. If we would have just come together and, and sat and been kind of quiet and some, I just talked, I would have been like, ah, eh, it was okay, I guess. I don't. But having to sing... And hearing the praises of God's people in the midst of what was not a fun time. 
it refocused us all, I think, and it was glorious. As Calvin wrote again, he said, we may not be wholly free from sorrow, but it is nevertheless necessary that this cheerfulness of faith rise above it and put into our mouth a song on account of the joy which is reserved for us in the future. Although not as yet experienced by us, just as we see David here preparing himself to celebrate in songs the grace of God before he perceives the issue of his troubles. He says, I'm going to sing. I will sing. I'll sing now. I don't even know how you're going to fix it, but I'm going to sing anyways. Because you're worthy to be praised. And then comes the line that I think every believer We've got to know this. Because he has dealt bountifully with me. Jesus, I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. Now, there is some argument here that this could be translated as a future tense. That David uses a very similar phrase, almost the same exact wording, in the last line of Psalm 142, where it says, The righteous will surround me, for you will deal bountifully with me. And I think it could be that. I think it could be future. I actually think it's both. Because when you rely on God's track record, when you look back, when you know that he's dealt bountifully with you, you have an utter belief that he's going to continue to deal bountifully with you. I do believe the focus, though, here is on remembering God's dealings. Our, our minds can wander so much. We can turn into Eeyores or puddle glums, and just, it's just bad. And, and, and we just worry about everything. But we need to remember. We need to remember that the Lord is a stronghold for His people. We need to recount His deeds in our life. That's utterly beneficial for us to do. The people of Israel were often chided for forgetting. They failed to remember. And they often did that in prosperity. When things were going well, they they failed to remember. But they did it all the time, just like we do. And yet here in the midst of great difficulty, David is remembering the Lord and how he has been greatly blessed. Psalm 116.7, Return, O my soul, to your rest, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. What puts us back at rest is the way God has dealt bountifully with his people. Folks, this whole psalm is a call to trust. It's a call to trust in the midst of whatever is going on in life. It's a lament, yes. But what I want to make sure we get is a lament is a prayer of faith, of great faith, because in the midst of the depths, you're still going to the Lord in faith. And from this, we can learn that though there is trouble in our lives, we have a great God. We ought to believe the words of our Lord Jesus I've said these things to you that in me you may, have, you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation. In the world, you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Not only that, 
But folks, Jesus has experienced not just a feeling of being forsaken. He was forsaken by the Father. Mark 15, 34, the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There, Jesus has the words of Psalm 22 on his lips. Jesus sang the laments. He was forsaken of God. The Father turned his face away so that we, his children, those who believe in him by faith, would never know what it's like to be truly forsaken. The Father may and I'd almost say will chastise us. He will correct us. He will reprove us. He will rebuke us. We will go through tribulation, but we will never, ever truly be forsaken of God. Those who are his children will never experience God's wrath because it's already been poured out on Jesus in your place. Not discounting that things can be hard, but perspective is kind of helpful. His steadfast love, his grace, and his mercy will never end. So let's be people who learn to cry, who learn to cry out to God how long or, or whatever it is you may be feeling. But let us make sure that our crying out is to God in faith. Let us learn from the laments. Learn to be honest in our feelings. But more than that, learn to, to trust in the steadfast love and mercy of God. Learn to, 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 to rest in the fact that He has dealt bountifully with His children. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks and prayer, praise just for who you are. Lord, work in our hearts. Teach us to lament. Teach us to pray in faith. Teach us to trust. And thanks for the examples that we have in Scripture. Lord, you are so good. May we rest in that goodness. In Christ's name, amen.